Father, we thank you and we bless you for the privilege of coming before your throne of grace, that we might obtain your mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Lord, to come tonight to your word. And Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds and everything that, uh, uh, that is in uh, your scriptures tonight. May it really just minister to our hearts. And may it encourage us, may it not only teach us, but may it encourage us to draw closer to you and, and Lord, to take hold of you uh, and not uh, for us not to fear that, uh, that relationship with you. We, we need you, Lord God. And yes, we need to fear you, but in reverence and respect. So help us to understand these things tonight as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Isaiah 29, beginning at verse 1. Isaiah 29. You see, with all of that prayer request and stuff, I'm starting like about almost 10, 10 minutes later than I normally do. So we'll see how, how it goes at the end here. I got more pages than I normally go, so let's see. Now I know I'm scaring some of you. It's all right. Isaiah 29, beginning at verse 1. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, <clears throat> let feasts come around. Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around, I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of the dust. We arrive now at the second of five woes pronounced by God against Judah and Jerusalem. Judah in general, Jerusalem in particular. And when we reach verse 15, we will find the third woe issued to God's people. The woe that is given in verse 1 is addressed directly to Ariel, a name which we have not previously seen or heard in Isaiah's prophecy, and could be translated actually two different ways. It is rendered lion-like, in 2 Samuel 23, let me read that verse. This is a mention of some of David's heroes. And it says in 2 Samuel 23, verse 20, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like, right there, that word, two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Well, in any, in any event, two lion-like heroes, that word lion-like is the word Ariel in the Hebrew. The word itself literally means lion of God. But in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 16, the word is also rendered altar hearth. Altar hearth. Or it could also mean altar of God. And so in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 16, we're told, and verses 15 and 16 actually use the term, I'll just use verse 16, it says, the altar hearth 
is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, square at its four corners. So there the usage of the word is now applied to an altar hearth. Interesting. And so Ariel can be rendered as either lion of God or altar of God. And actually in this passage in Isaiah, we can see how they will both be used and how they can both be used. Ariel, nevertheless, is referring symbolically to Jerusalem, David's city. The goal of the two woes in chapter 29, verse 1 and verse 15, was to warn Jerusalem of the coming distress which the Lord would humble them with for their pride and arrogance. In verse 15, it deals with a warning given to them concerning their quote-unquote wisdom, a wisdom that they believe they had greater than God's wisdom. It is interesting that the lion was the symbol of the Assyrian nation and the Lord would be using this Assyrian lion to humble a proud lion of God, to humble Ariel, the lion of God. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. Notice this. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. Interesting usage of words in in the English. I'll explain it in a moment. After David had made Jerusalem his capital and built his place on, or I should say his palace on Mount Zion, God's glory was manifested there in a, in a wonderfully amazing way. And, and even during the reign of Solomon, his son, when the temple was erected on Mount Moriah, the worshipful service of God was carried on by God's anointed priests who stood between God and his people to offer sacrifices and offerings. But as time went by, A tremendous decline took place and Judah had turned from fearing the Lord and worship was then only a formality. Folks, listen carefully because this can happen today. As a matter of fact, in many places and in many ways, it has already happened in our day and in our time. In other words, a decline from having a true and and sincere worship of God to bringing worship down to a formality. True spiritual worship no longer took place and the Lord God Himself could no longer tolerate the unfaithful hypocrisy that now characterized the people with whom He had entered into covenant relationship. They had failed to carry out their part of the covenant and so Jerusalem, which had been as the Lion of God, Ariel, would now become as a great altar hearth, Ariel, where its own population would be sacrificed through the ruthless hostility and hatred of their bitter foes. In other words, it would become a place of slaughter. That is what the altar was. It was a place of slaughter. So then when you look at verse 2 once again, and it says, Yet I will distress Ariel, the Lion of God, there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as an altar hearth as the altar of God, where slaughter would take place. 
And so, no matter how many sacrifices, listen carefully, no matter how many sacrifices the people would offer year after year, you caught that in verse 1, woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt, add year to year, let feasts come around, you see. No matter how many sacrifices the people would offer year after year, it wasn't going to change God's mind about the coming trouble. People today think that all they have to do is offer, you know, a little pittance, as it were, of themselves or of their, of, of what they own or what they have and say, well, that's, that's enough. You know, I've, I've done the formality. People understand this. Uh, you know, we're coming up to Resurrection Sunday. Many people call it Easter Sunday. And, and uh, you know, a while back... Uh, I'd mentioned, and certainly it's, it's not uh, to affect any of you, of course. But uh, in the church, we, we have uh, those that we call CEO Christians. They're CEOs. In other words, Christmas and Easter only. That's when they show up to church. They're the CEOs. You see, it becomes a formality for them. I can't go the rest of the year because I'm too busy, but I can go on Christmas and in Easter. Is it any wonder why the churches fill up on Christmas and Easter? Where is everybody the rest of the year? But don't think that only those that come Christmas and Easter are the only ones that do that. Because you can actually come to church and still have that same kind of attitude. You can actually sit in a chair or in a pew and have the same kind of attitude. Because the problem doesn't lie in what you do and what you do on the outside. It lies in the heart. And this is what God is dealing with his own people about. Notice verses 3 and 4 of our text. It says, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. Now he's talking about those who are going to come to them. In the near fulfillment, it would be Assyria. They would come and set up those siege mounds, as it says in the next part. I will raise siege works against you. But he's saying, I will do it. God is bringing judgment upon his people with a lion, a Syrian, an Assyrian lion. He says, you shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground, your speech shall be low out of the dust, your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. <clears throat> and the Lord was going to humble a once proud city. And instead of roaring and frightening the enemy, much like a lion would do, the humbled lion would only whisper from the dust. One can only look at this and consider that this was only a partial fulfillment of a prophecy that would culminate in the time of Jacob's trouble. In the end times, but in the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, when the Lord will gather all nations against Jerusalem. The far fulfillment now. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, for example, verses 1 and 2. And certainly you can see some hints of this in, in uh, Revelation 14, and then more hints, in, and much more than hints in Revelation 16, which we won't cover tonight, but in Zechariah 14, look, look at what it says. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Folks, is there a Jerusalem right now? Is there a Jerusalem right now? Yeah, it's, it's in the news a lot, isn't it? There is a Jerusalem 
You cannot spiritualize what, is, what it is saying here. And you cannot say that this is talking about a time that has already been passed and has already been fulfilled. It may have been partially fulfilled, but listen to what it says. For I will gather all the nations. How many? All the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. I mean, that's an ominous statement. It is an ominous passage. And you better believe that God is going to do what He says. And so great will the sufferings of the people be that they will cry to God as if out of the dust, yet the Lord will appear to deliver and to, and, and to destroy. He will deliver His people and He will destroy the enemy. Notice verse 3 of, of Zechariah 14. It says, Then the Lord will go forth. But notice when, after those things happen. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. You see, when it looks like the city is about to fall and the enemies are sure that victory is theirs, the Lord Jesus will return and the enemy's victory will all but vanish. And this leads to the next section of our text. Isaiah 29, verse 5 and 6. Moreover, it says, the multitude of your foes. Now the the emphasis is on the foes. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust. And the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. In other words, chaff being uh, you know, the, the covering of, 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 a, of a weed or a corn uh, 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 kernel, as it were. Uh, the, the, the hard part on the outside. It, it, it's what is cracked during the milling process. And that's just chaff. It's no good. It just blows away. So understand what the, what's going to happen to the foes that come upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. The multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant. Suddenly you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. You see, the Lord will humble Jerusalem in the dust and then scatter her enemies, not only like dust, but like chaff that passes away. So consider in the, in the near fulfillment in, in, in 701 B.C. when Assyria marched triumphantly through Judah and almost took Jerusalem. We are told in, sec, in Scripture that God defeated Assyria in an instant. In an instant. By the way, it's historically accurate. And Isaiah 37 verse 36 tells us that. We've we've actually looked at this verse before in our study. We're going to probably see it again a few more times. But Isaiah 37 verse 36 says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there there were the corpses all dead. That was God bringing judgment upon Assyria. Now understand that this discipline, this discipline and this kind of discipline should have brought the people back to the Lord. But instead, after the death of Hezekiah, Hezekiah being the king at the time of this particular Assyrian invasion, after the death of Hezekiah, they returned to their sins. You see, it, it, reminds, it reminds me so much of, of 9-11. All of us here understand a little bit about 9-11. All of us here were around when it happened. 
And after 9-11, churches again began to get filled. People were crying and trying to repent and trying to, you know, and some did. And praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that people got right. But as a nation, as a whole, you know, we started turning to God and we started saying, you know, God bless America. And everybody's singing, God bless America. When actually we should have said, America, bless God. America, turn back to God. This is a wake-up call. Get ourselves right with God. And so after a few years, you know, after a little bit of a heightened patriotism and high, what do we have today? Fighting once again and within our own country over how things are being done in Iraq and all of that. And where's God? Now there's even more of a push by many uh, people to get God out of, of, of the government and out of public life and out of public mention. Uh, let me just tell you this, God's not going so quick. God is not going so quick as long as his people will stand for him and for his truth. That's you and me. As long as we will stand. So what was the result then of this in Hezekiah's time? The result of this, of course, was the Babylonian conquest in 586 B.C. in which thousands of Jews were taken into captivity and transported to Babylon. And then in verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 29, it says, The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and, and, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul, star, his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. How often, how often has the enemy believed that its effort to destroy God's people and blot the nation of Israel from the, faith, from the face of the earth has succeeded? only to discover that the Lord God of Israel has gone forth and fought on Ariel's behalf. How often has the enemy thought that it has finally destroyed God's people? As recent as when? The time of the Holocaust. The final solution. What people need to wake up to is that there's still a final solution being uh, built up today. No longer by, by Nazis, but by a different kind of fascism. They call it today Islamofascism. Do we not hear Ahmadinejad from Iran say that he wants to wipe Israel off the, the map? In the last century, uh, uh, mid, mid to the late uh, 20th century, people was Nasser, uh, you know, Nasser from Egypt and, and, and uh, Yasser Arafat and, and many others. Same thought, same desire to wipe out a whole people. The fact is, when they try, God will bring them judgment. 
You see, because the Lord will protect Jerusalem, the nations that come against her will become frustrated. This is what this section in verses 7 and 8 is about. They'll become frustrated and they find themselves deprived of their prey. They will be like a man who dreams of food. Have you ever done that? You ever dreamed of food, but then you wake up hungry? Of course, because you are only eating in your dream. That big two-pound steak, juicy, an inch and a half thick, hanging off the sides of your plate. You remember that dream? Or the massive Twinkie, three feet long and filled, and you were eating it, and you had stuff all over your face, only to wake up and realize, that's not Twinkie stuff on your face. Oh, you know, you got to watch out. You're drooling again. Okay. You see, you get the picture here. They'll be like a man who dreams of food, but they wake up hungry. Or, or they dream of water, but they wake up faint with thirst. They will dream of fulfillment, but be unfulfilled. That is what this, these two verses are saying. They will think that when they have everything that they've got, you know, they've got Israel, they've got Jerusalem in the palm of their hands, it escapes out of them. What was in their minds fulfilled was not fulfilled at all and will not be fulfilled at all. Isaiah 50, I'm sorry, Isaiah 65 verse 13 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. So who's eating and who's hungry? Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. But now let's get back to the problem of the woes. Get back to the problem of why are they being judged? In other words, why is Judah and Jerusalem being judged? Why, why were God's people in Jerusalem so ignorant of what was going on? Because this is what is being driven by, by Isaiah for us to understand. Why were God's people in Jerusalem so ignorant of what was going on? Primarily, it was spiritual blindness. It was spiritual blindness. Let's go on to verses 9 and 10 now in Isaiah 29. Listen to what the prophet says. Pause and wonder. But blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. You see, as a people, they had eyes and they had ears. And they had a head about them as a people. It was the prophets. It, it, it was the prophets and the seers. Those who were given gifts by God to receive from God what the people needed to hear. And when the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, they needed to hear what they were saying. But the people didn't listen. And they didn't see. And as a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that they got so upset with the prophets that they would kill many of the prophets. Like some people today, I don't want to hear the gospel. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. I, I, you know, they, they, they refuse to listen to it and they run from it when they know it's the truth. You see, their pride had made them spiritually blind and spiritually drunk. 
they needed to pause and to wonder about these things because though they did it to themselves, they lacked the self-awareness to see their condition. It's, it's, it is a lot like those who are, who are uh, alcoholics today. You know, they, they'll, be, they'll be the first to deny that they're, they've got a problem. And they don't see their condition. They think they can handle it. I can handle this stuff. Oh, yeah, no, that's no problem for me. Oh, no, no, no. But their families are falling apart, and sometimes they destroy the lives of others. Drunk drivers taking the lives of innocent people on the streets. What seems like a blessing here is in fact a curse. This kind of statement can can be and has already been misinterpreted by those who today promote the idea that God blesses His people with being drunk in the Spirit. Notice what it says. Oh, they are drunk but not with wine. It's exactly what a certain movement today has been saying. You know, the, the, the holy laughter movement. You know, we're, we're drunk with a new wine, you know. Even though the Bible says no, you need to be in you need to be in full control. The fruit of the spirit is self-control. The spirit of deep sleep. Notice in our text only implies that a person who is asleep does nothing productive. A person is in a deep sleep, he does nothing productive. A person in a deep sleep remains vulnerable and insensitive to that which is around him. Think about it. Now in my younger days, any little sound, you know, at night, Now, you could drop a bomb. But, but don't, don't try anything because i got a dog now. He's my ears at night, you know. And he'll lick my face to wake me up and say, get out there. Okay. You understand now, a deep sleep, though, those of you that sleep pretty heavily, you know, the train can go right through your room and you don't hear him. You understand? Well, you know, if you're in that kind of a sleep, what, what is it? You're, you're not going to be productive. There's not going to be anything that you, you do. You do stay vulnerable to things, right? Because you don't hear. You're just in that deep sleep and, and insensitive then to the things around you. So I just want to make that pretty clear. But, but should we think that this was only Judah's problem? Consider what the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome. Let's, let's turn to Romans 13. Turn to Romans 13 and see that this isn't just, we're not sitting, we're not sitting back and looking at, at those, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jews back in Judah and Jerusalem saying, oh boy, they sure had a problem. You know what? We have it too. And it is a, it is a problem today in the church and we need to look at it. It says here in Romans 13 verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Folks, these are some of the most beautiful verses, and yet they are some of the most impacting verses to the heart if we're not doing these things. 
It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One tablet of the law that is talking about our love for others is summed up in that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, he says. Notice what he says. And do this, knowing the time. Folks, that was two, nearly 2,000 years ago. And, and that was in the, what was considered to be part of the last days. Well, we're 2,000 years later. Are we closer now to what's going to happen? Should we not know the time in which we live? And notice what he says. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And that's even more pertinent to us today. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. What is Paul implying here is that there were those in the church that were still hanging around with some of the works of darkness. And he says, let's cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust. What is he saying to the church? Some of this is right here, right now. It's got to be cast out. You've got to get rid of it. No revelry, no drunkenness, no lewdness and lust. These are dealing with sexual issues. Not, no, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a statement that, that, it, that, that talks about putting something on like a garment. Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ today? It's like putting on the armor of God. Why? Because every piece of the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians 6 is speaking of Jesus Christ. And, and, and some part of what Jesus Christ is for us. Have we put on the armor of God? Have we put on Jesus Christ? And notice it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. We have become a very, very sensual church. And I say that of the body of Christ, not, not uh, this church in particular. But the problem exists here as well. We look, at the, we look at the society around us. We look at the things that we have to deal in our culture and all. And we say, you know what? We have to keep putting blinders on. Because there's so much flesh out there. I'm not talking just about fleshly things or images and all of that. But how about the desires of people's hearts? The desires for money, the desires for, for fame, the desires for fortune, the desires for, for, for things that, you know, I mean, it's, it's all around us. How many times are we tempted? Listen, you can make, you know, an emails thing, you know, you get these things. You can make $115,642 in 24 hours. And let me show you how. Just send me half of that. I'll show you how. Easy money. You know, just give, buy your, your lottery tickets. And, and now, you know, you look at numbers like on the wall and you say, oh, that's the, my lottery number. And you go fill it out. 
Now, you know, I'm not saying that that's a sin, but I'm, I am telling you that people are more interested in what is outward and, and fleshly than what is in, the, in their heart. They're filling their heart with God's Word. They're not praying. You know, but, but boy, we're ready on Saturday night to see the numbers come up on TV. And I'm only halfway through here. Let's move on. So in Jerusalem, choosing blindness and drunkenness, because this is what they chose to do. This is what they chose for themselves. In choosing blindness and drunkenness, the Lord closed their spiritual eyes and he took something away from them, which is what they wanted all along. Listen carefully. He took something away from them that they wanted all along. He silenced the prophets and the seers. And the word of God was neglected. He silenced the prophets. This is what you want? Then what does it say there about the prophets? The spirit of deep sleep has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. He silenced the prophets and the seers. And so what happened? The word of God was neglected. Can I share something with you from Amos chapter 8? Many of you are familiar with this passage, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Folks, listen, the hearing. What does that involve? Hearing, your ears. Hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. The word of the Lord today is, is, is being watered down, watered down, watered down. They're almost as if you can go from sea to sea. And where are you looking for? You're, you know, I hope and pray that in this place we will find the word of God. But folks, what things are people hearing today because that's what they want to hear without hearing or even waiting or wanting to hear the whole counsel of God's word. What things are people hearing today because that's what they want to hear without hearing the whole counsel of God's word. What are people hearing today? Why are there so many winds of doctrine through Christendom today? Why? I, I can tell you that we, can, we, we actually water down, we water down the Word of God with so many paraphrases, so many translations, you know, new ways of looking at things. We've got to make it relevant. You know, there's that word, you know, we've talked about so much relevance. You know, we've got to make the gospel relevant, so we have to water it down? I can tell you this, the Word of God tells us that, that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. I don't know about you, but that seems to me the most relevant message that we can give. And that we're sinners and that without the, the blood of Jesus Christ, we're in trouble. Without the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're in trouble. But no, we've got to, we've got to you know, keep from stepping on people's toes. I'm sorry, but man, what's happening here? You guys teach the Bible too much. You know, I, want, I, want, I want some entertainment. Well, go buy an HDTV and sit at home. And you can hear all those, you know, her heretical teachers tell you about how to make more money, too. That's all it's about, you see. But are they preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
know, are you a part of the work in, in, the, in the church? Are you part of the church? You know, the church is a beautiful thing, folks, by the way. No matter how many times we look and we say, oh, man, look at the imperfections. Folks, we are imperfect, aren't we? But I'll tell you what, the head of the church isn't. The head, of the, the head of the church is perfect, and that's why we are supposed to be here, giving praise to Him and learning from Him and letting Him teach us through His Holy Spirit, His Word. The Bible says that He is the Word of God. Ephesians 4.14 says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the coming craftiness of deceitful plotting. But then later on in Ephesians 4.17-20, uh, Paul says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Folks, he's saying this because there were those in the church that were going through this. He says, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. That is not what you've learned. And the great burden in our hearts as pastors in the churches today is to be here preaching God's Word, week in and week out, not for us only. Yes, it's for us. I tell you what, if I, if I go through all this time to study and bring this all together, it speaks to me before it speaks to you. I'm put on the fire before we turn on the heat down here. You think that I'm up here in the cool part? That's a little warm up here. But you think I'm in the cool part and I'm just going to turn the fire on just for you? Man, the fire was turned on for me already. I've had to struggle through this. To know what I need to do before the Lord God. So why is it that we're finding ourselves in all of these messes and all of these situations? It is because we're not listening and we're not looking and we're not receiving. We are being, we are setting ourselves just like Jerusalem was. Setting ourselves up as blind. To the point that we have fallen into a spiritual illiteracy. Just like Jerusalem. Look at verses 11 and 12 now. Just like Jerusalem. Man, I got I'm going to put it on, on overdrive now, okay? So be ready. Verses 11 and 12. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. In other words, to people who could understand it, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. There's an excuse. I can't read this because it's sealed. And then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I'm not literate. I can't understand it. I don't know how to read. No, I speak the English. Isaiah now likens Jerusalem to the illiterate in that the word has become unintelligible to them, or they just don't want to open it up. Not because it lacked clarity of expression or simplicity of teaching, but because they were so blinded by unbelief that they read as men with a veil over their hearts. And Paul spoke about that in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 through 16, when he says, But their minds were blinded. For until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Folks, 
You don't have to have a veil over your heart. You don't have to have a veil over your eyes. God can lift that when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I have actually heard preachers say that it is useless to attempt to study, let's say, in the book of Revelation. It's useless to attempt to study in the book of Revelation because it is a sealed book and nearly impossible to understand. Some have said that. And I'm thinking, that's interesting because, you know, the book, the, the name Revelation means revealing. Well, they just shot themselves in the foot with that. While others have said that it takes the scholarly to grasp some of its truth. And simple Christians couldn't expect to unravel its mysteries. (laughs) Wow. Revelation, like I said, means revealing. And twice in the book of Revelation, the Lord himself pronounced a blessing on those who, who read the book and keep its sayings. And by the way, the one it was given to was John. And you know what John was? He was a fisherman. That was his school. Revelation 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Does it say anywhere there? Blessed are they who go to five years of of seminary. Do you see that there? Ten years of seminary would be better. That's more like ten years in cemetery. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Now, obedience, folks, obedience. For the time is near. In the last chapter, that was the first chapter, in the last chapter, it says in Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. This is Jesus. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are you if you keep the words. You know what it means to keep? It means to guard it. It means to know it and to guard it and to do it. To keep the prophecy. Oh, listen. And so why were the people so ignorant of what was going on in Jerusalem? We've got to move on quick. Now, boy, let's go. Here we go. Verse 13. Are you with me? Isaiah 29, verse 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. And now we find the third woe to Jerusalem in verse 15. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? You see, their, their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were far from God. They may have participated in the outward forms of worship and more than likely kept the annual feast faithfully, but it wasn't a true worship of God. When Jesus was confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees about His disciples transgressing the traditions of the elders by not washing their hands when they ate bread, you know what He responded? Look at Matthew 15, verse 3. He said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? 
For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Well, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. So they always look for loopholes in the law. And then thus he says, uh, verse 7, hypocrites is what he calls them. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, and this is where he gets it from, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I mean, Jesus just told it like it was. You guys are always looking for loopholes. And as it was in those days, I am sorry to say it is the same today. Listen, going to the temple was a popular thing to do, but most of the people didn't take the act of worship seriously. I mean, we can fill buildings today, folks. It happens. I mean, thousands of people can go because they're attracted by one thing or another. You can fill a building, man, but if your heart, I mean, your heart can be far from God. You go through motions, but you don't take seriously who God is. You see, we need to have a high view of God and a high view of Jesus Christ. But the moment we begin to look at men and try to deal with what they want and what their needs might be or whatever, then we say, you know, well, God comes later and and, and they have a high view of man and, and a low view of God. They have removed their hearts far from me. It isn't the Lord who moves away from his people. They remove their hearts from him. By this time their hearts were responding to men, but not to God, for they had no fear of God in them. And again this persists today. Listen to Paul in Romans 11, verses 7 and 8. He says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And then he says, the wisdom of their strength, I'm sorry, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. You see, their wise men promoted the pride that led to blindness, sleep, drunkenness, illiteracy, and hypocrisy, the things that we've already talked about tonight. But the marvelous work and wonder that is mentioned in, this, uh, in these verses that we just read is His displaying wisdom His way. In other words, God displaying wisdom His way, and we need to surrender to that. We need to bow down to that. We need to submit to God's wisdom in how He wants to do things. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20-25. through Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? If you are spending time with God, listen, if you're spending time with God in prayer, in the reading of the Scriptures, if you're, if you're spending more time with God than you are in this world, when you get out into the world and you see the way, thing, the, the, way the world does things, you're saying, man, that's foolish. But the minute you start thinking that everything that the world does is pretty cool, it's okay, there's a problem. You have stopped spending time with God. You're not spending time at all with Him. When the world is more important, the way that the world does things is more important to you than, than the things of God, then man, you're not even close to Him. Your heart is far from Him. That is what is being said here. 
Paul goes on in verse 21 to say, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If God could be foolish and God could be weak, nonetheless it's still stronger than men. But God isn't foolish. And God by no means is weak. And then he asks the question, is the clay as worthy as the potter? Is the clay as worthy as the potter? Some of you were here that Wednesday night uh, when Mike and Pam Roselle were here and made that big, huge, beautiful pot, whatever he did, and messed up stage, whatever. You know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He doesn't do that. But, you know, he, you know, he did that thing, and, and, and you realize, you know, what he was teaching? The potter could form mess it up, build it up again. Who is worthy? It's the potter. It's the potter. You see, this was their terrible mistake. They raised themselves up and lowered God at the same time. They raised themselves up and lowered God. That is, that is a, a, a utter mistake. You see, today, they won't, people won't admit this, but, but all you have to do is listen to what they teach. There will be those who have a low view of God and a high view of man. And they are worshiping at the altar of what is called self-esteem. Now, it seems like it would be a nice thing to, you know, build some people up who kind of are down on themselves. Well, really all you need to do is tell them that Jesus came to die for their sins. They don't have to bear that guilt anymore because 99 times out of 100 people are burdened by the guilt of their sin as if to say, God cannot forgive me. But folks, he is a forgiving God. But some have turned it around to say, well, you know, what we need to do is really not tell them the, you know, the, the gospel or, or share the cross. We, we just need to tell them, you know, you're, you know you, you have, God made you a certain way and you just need to look at that. And that's, that's really it. We're just esteem of self. No. God says, worship me for there is no other God and my son Jesus Christ. For there is no other Savior. No other Savior. Last, well, we're almost done. Isaiah 29, verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall turn into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? In that day the deaf, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. You see the whole... A tenor of things has changed now. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. 
who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. The scornful will be consumed, the terrible one brought to nothing. In this millennial picture, we see that God's restoration will come and once again, the land will be fruitful and populated. The mention of Lebanon here is really a, from a proverbial saying reflecting a change from desolation, which is what the land was at one time without people, to the might as the trees of Lebanon, to the cedars of Lebanon were the mighty, the powerful trees that they were. So he's describing a change from desolation to might. And when God's people are restored, pride will no longer prevent them from hearing God's word or seeking God's work. Joy will be the proper reward for the humble. Hey, that's a tremendous, uh, uh, that's a tremendous uh, uh, reward to have. Joy. It's a tremendous reward to have. You know, some people want some kind of, you know, applause. Or they want, you know, they want some kind of, you know, uh, you know I deserve something better. They, they, uh, I deserve some recognition in the church. I deserve some recognition for doing this. You know, my question is, are you a servant? Last time I checked, a servant or a bond slave was, 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 was answer, you know, he, he answered to his master. And, and whatever the master asked, he should do it without complaint. Because the master is going to take care of him. Our master is going to love us and take care of us. So, man, that's, you know, he's going to raise the humble. He's going to exalt the humbles one day. You just keep serving the Lord. Don't worry about who, who needs applause around here or whatever. You know, what, what's all this about, you see? What is greater than the reward of joy? Folks, the proud, the proud can have money. The proud can have all kinds of things. The proud can be successful. And, 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 and the proud can be happy, but they will never be joyful because happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is, 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 is good, but ha- happiness is, is, is based on circumstances. It's based on what happens. I mean, certain things will make you happy, but joyful, we can be joyful through the roughest and ugliest times of our life. Joy will be the proper reward for the humble. Psalm 34, as a matter of fact, tells us that in verses 1 through 4. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. And notice, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. That's speaking of joy. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. You see, pride is the enemy of true joy. Pride is the enemy of true joy. The proud can't recognize, I'm sorry, the proud can't rejoice in the midst of trials and tribulations. The proud cannot rejoice in poverty and in less than ideal circumstances. But we are reminded by James in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the test of you, uh, testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As Christians, we can have joy. As a matter of fact, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And then out of all of this, justice will come to the wicked. You see, I'm going to close very quickly. Justice is going to come to the wicked. And then in verse 22, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of, his hand, of my hands in his midst, midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. His people are now addressed as Jacob 
in this promise of restoration. Actually, this isn't complimentary for him to mention Jacob because this, this father of the 12 tribes of Israel has a name, Jacob, that means con man. He was a con man. He has good reason to be ashamed. But when God restores his people, even Jacob's shall no longer be ashamed. You see, we can sit here today knowing what we did in the past before we came to Christ. That would have shamed us. But now Jesus has taken that. And guess what? We no longer have to be ashamed. And this will happen to Israel and to Jerusalem. Now the name of the Lord will be hallowed, reverenced, and respected. You see, that's coming. What great hope this is for us as well. You do not have to be ashamed, folks. I want to leave you with the words of Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Amen. Ask yourselves, has God opened up our hearts to reveal something that needs to be dealt with right now? Is your heart drawn to God this very night? Not to me. Not to this church. Is your heart drawn to Jesus Christ? Or is your heart far from God tonight? I hope and pray that if your heart is far from God, that your heart has been opened so that you can see that sin that you will say right now before God, Father, forgive me that I have left you, that I have walked away. And I need to realize that I, gotta, I need to take my worship of you seriously. When I talk about worship, I don't talk about just singing. I mean, it's not, you know, a lot of times we just say praise and worship is singing. Praise and worship is living. It is living our life in the presence of a holy God. It is living our life as a reflection of the love of Christ. It is living our life totally and completely for the one who saved us and keeps us. Are you living your life? For the Lord Jesus Christ, is your heart toward God or is it far from Him? Let's pray.